0: This is an, uh, oasis in my week.
1: Hey friends, you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. The agenda for this episode is Chasing It, episode 81. The gambling episode. The Dostoevsky episode. Tony could, as we know, be a character in any number of Dostoevsky books. But what's this, a Russian novel book club now? This episode was written by Matthew Weiner, directed by Tim Van Patten, and originally aired on April 29, 2007. It's as close to a continuation from last episode as probably any other to date. Taken together could be a continuous two hour unraveling of sorts, complete with a white caps light showdown. We open on T, likely spending that Hesh bridge loan at the casino. Looks like it wasn't to fill a hole to get out of, but rather to create a bigger one. T's practically Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood drinking from whatever straw he can grasp to find his milkshake. He's got that competition in him. I have a competition in me. I I want no one else to succeed. Wonder why Hesh couldn't see that coming from a mile away. He talks an awful lot about it after the fact, as we'll see. But in the moment, at Katz's, He knew. But what was he going to do? What was he going to say? No? Maybe he thought T would forget about it once he got back to Jersey. But what? We going from remember when to what if now? T's with the whole gang playing roulette, French for little wheel. Unclear where initially, but likely AC. Certainly doesn't look as makeshift as one of their card games. He's up big, said everybody at the precipice of a cautionary tale. But rather than take his chips off the table, he pushes them in. He chases past losses, trying to recoup them and then some. Feeling lucky, like Franca Patente and Run Lola Run, a film that inspired the Bon Jovi video for It's My Life. It's ride or die on 23. Or now or never, if you want to get cute with the Bon Jovi lyric. And he can't even split the difference. The ball falls on 11. This got me wondering about roulette generally. And quite frankly, it's staying power. It was originally something of a science experiment, a byproduct in the search for a perpetual motion machine. The game is all about probability. There's very little skill involved other than whatever inner vibrations are happening inside you. If you hit any single number, the payout is 35 to one. If you split two numbers, it's 17 to one. The house has an edge Word to the wise, besides remember Pearl Harbor, of course, the house always has an edge, even on the action with the best odds. That's when you either bet all high numbers, all low numbers, red or black. I can tell you from personal experience that on the rare occasion I'm actually in front of a roulette table, I think of Wesley Snipes, in that I always bet. On black. I think, if memory serves, that credo has worked out okay for me in that context. Thanks, Wesley.
0: You ever play roulette? On occasion. Well, let me give you a word of advice. Always bet on black.
1: Back on roulette for a sec. Every now and again, a guy walks into a casino and believes he can beat the house edge by betting on a pattern that gives credence to the notion that past results are predictors of the future. Tell that to the folks who slap disclaimers across investment products. In the context of roulette, the belief is that even if they come out ahead somewhere on the timeline, it's a mathematical certainty that they will be chasing it eventually. Dostoevsky who, among other things, is considered one of the greatest chroniclers of mental illness, wrote a semi-autobiographical book about Roulette, ostensibly to pay off significant gambling debts of his own. At one point, he bet all his publishing rights, past and future, in an effort to repay his tab. But what do Russians in debt have to do with Roulette's staying power? What of that? Of course, there's the spectacle of it all, the suspense. It's the same as watching Ralphie swing around a chain with the master lock at the end of it. Then there's the simplicity. Even Georgie has a chance at roulette. But perhaps the biggest piece is the social aspect. It's often the loudest corner of a casino spectators, and players alike congregate like no place else. And there's a communal component. People can bet in the same places together, celebrating each other's victories, commiserating together with each loss. Only here, the only person betting is T. And you get the sense that many of the guys in his crew, in this thing of his, could give a fuck, whether he's up, down. Cut to a misfit. Incidentally, another common character in Dostoevsky books. This one's vandalizing a cemetery. Note that choice of word was intentional, as he looks like he could be in a kid's misfits cover band, who, not coincidentally, came out of Lodi, New Jersey. And fittingly, given the scene here in the cemetery as the band pioneered horror punk. We hear a, the fuck Vito, you almost hit me. His partner in crime. Yes, that Vito, complete with black lipstick, eyeliner, spiky hair, and leather armbands. But not the poly kind T would like, like last episode. A new direction for Vito. To say the least, since learning the truth about his dad, they get spotted with a flashlight and take off. Back on tea, lamenting his losses to Sill inside Satriales. 10 to 1 odds, poor boy's delight. A reference to the infamous Stringdusters song? Perhaps the name of a horse he woulda, shoulda, coulda bet on. Just then, Vito's widow, Marie, walks in. Sil calls her a meza morta, literally half dead. In all fairness to her, she's doing pretty good, all things considered. I mean, she's not running a body shop empire like Angie. But remember how Carmela found her shortly after Pussy died? Quote-unquote died? Well, whatever they think happened to him. She was handing out samples at the grocery store. which to be honest, is super respectable. Pride comes before the fall. But she got up and worked. She enters humbly, grateful for the audience. It's clear she made an appointment to CT. He got her calendar invite and accepted it, the whole thing, but seemingly missed the auto-reminder ping, as it looked a little like he forgot for a sec, or was honestly not looking forward to the encounter and was hoping maybe she'd forget. She says she doesn't know where else to go. She's concerned about little V. He's been doing things like hanging cats on garage doors. That line always felt like it got put through one of those online idea generators, and that's what it spit out, and they went with it. Like that domain generator site, impossibility.org, I think. He's been acting out, she explains responding to persecution, which, when she puts it that way, sounds kind of reasonable. But it's the degree and extent that's got her reaching out or trying to reach into Tony's pockets. Hey, even Angie did once, too. But her mistake was using Carmela as a proxy to get to Tony. Tony is absorbing all the permutations. Probably saw it coming. But not entirely thrilled it's landing on his doorstep. Especially when a financial ask is on deck. Before resorting to that, he tries to offer comfort. Says it's to be expected with Vito's passing. And all that it entrailed. Confusing the word for bowels with the verb for involves. A Freudian slip of the mafia variety. Her solution is to move away, a fresh start. She has a plan for only 100K. They can relocate to Orono, Maine. It's just outside of Bangor by a university, the University of Maine, whose famous alumni include Stephen King and one of my favorite coaches in the league, Rick Carlisle. Anyway, there's a two-story cape there, in a district with solid schools. She's thought the whole thing through. She slides over a piece of paper, in a way Stuart Scott would say, as cool as the other side of the pillow. Torn out from a steno pad, scratched on it are the details of her relocation expenses, with an ask at the bottom. Selling their house in New Jersey, applying any profits after expenses toward a new house in Maine, with the balance of 100k left over. Tony, without hesitation, says, "Sure, but first, you have to talk to his uncle, meaning Uncle Phil. Fresh Prince of Sheep'shead Bay over here. She corrects him: Phil's not his uncle; rather, she and he are second cousins." Second cousins. That's your grandparents, siblings, kids, kid. Your granduncle or aunt's grandkid. As confusing as that is to say, in 20-fucking-21, it's even more of a triumph of society that people were actually able to keep track of that shit without modern computing. Whatever the org chart is over there in Spataforland, T thinks it's best he talk to Vito first, before she go and do anything drastic. Give his talk therapy skills a flex. It's worth mentioning at this point that the film quality of this episode in particular is different. It's sharper, crisper, more contrasty, more colorized, but cooler. She says he's impossible to talk to. But didn't she, like every other parent over the past 30 years, grab a copy of How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk? Now, I don't recall a coastal cape being in there, but stuff like acknowledging feelings, converting punishment to cooperation, and empowering with choices were. And one or all the above might have been more effective than getting likened to a Puerto Rican whore. Wait for it. Tony gets up, doesn't need to say anymore. They're going to do it his way first. She looks up the power dynamic between them on full display optically, says confidently, okay, but you'll think about it? He reassures her but there's nothing to worry about. But it's clear that 100K isn't coming easy. Or anytime soon, if at all. Marie's going to have to bring out her best approximation of Donna Summer. Work hard for the money. If she's going to see a dime. Cut to Silvio fixing a broken antique lamp like he just excavated it from the Passaic. Indiana Jones over here. T lets him know apparently Vito Jr.'s a whack job. But still isn't surprised. Turning from an archaeologist to a psychiatrist now. Family history. Besides, for him, the writing was on the wall when he paid a direct visit to Marie to get a fix on Vito Sr. T says she wants 100 k for a change of scenery. His vibe Usually, you personally shell out for a change of scenery rather than get the means via charity. But can't help but think his receptiveness to this might be a little better had he not blown his winnings at the roulette table. Sill says change of sceneries never work. Get a dog instead. T disagrees. His larger issue? How the fuck is this my problem? Just because I'm the boss? Who else is she supposed to go to? No pension. No life insurance. No 401k in this thing of theirs. No fucking annuities. It's T. He's her Fidelity. Or if you want to get cute. Fidelta. But Tony wants Phil. To be Fidelity. Vanguard. And all the rest. After all. He created the situation by clipping Vito to begin with. And he's the uncle or cousin or whatever the fuck. Recall, Tony was going to clip Vito. Phil just got to him first. Sill, just listening, preoccupied with his lamp project, does the easy thing. Agrees. Not a hill he's going to die on. Been watching a lot of Civil War stuff lately, so... Forgive the overuse of that term this episode. Later, over at the Bing, new girls, new faces. But the guys are focused on a game. Bucks and Bills. Could have been this year, based on the quality of the two teams. On a botched play, Buffalo wins. And Tony loses, again. What's worse, there's an over-celebratory patron. Guy probably won $35 down there. There's enough of a beat that you think T's gonna go into Georgie mode on him. But it passes. Paulie offers to skip another beer, but he declines and says he's gonna go take a snooze. Instead, he goes to the back of the office and tears the place apart. Even sweats to the point of a panic attack. Then we're saved by the sounds of soft rock playing, a band with Nancy Sinatra as the front woman. Nancy, of course, the second Sinatra to appear on the show. Her younger brother, Frank Jr., of course, dropped by for the happy wanderer. She's singing for Phil and his crew. Well, mostly for Phil, actually. The new king of New York. So much for grandkids. Papers on front porches. And bingo night at the airport Hilton. Tony and company are also present, reluctantly. This, of course, the last thing they wanted. Tony's candidate was Little Carmine. His guy lost twice. But if we're operating on the Biden model, he's just getting started. Plenty of time. The song, Big Boss Man, off her Nancy album, It's about, among other things, a tall guy. Recall, Doc Santoro once sang about Phil being tall, too. Which he's not. And we know how that ended. But these two, they're well acquainted. Her and Philly, that is, as she calls him. Moments later, Chris is talking about the business end of his movie. Festival route versus a distribution partner. The filmmaker's quandary whether to take a deal in advance of a festival or have it go to a tier one festival and potentially blow up, creating leverage for a higher price. T's looking over from afar, combination of disgusted and irritated. The bad taste in the mouth dynamic of that relationship still going. Chris notices and moves along the other way. Literally, Exiting stage left. It's 11.30. The guys are ready to head out. Tony walks over to Phil, who's sitting down with Nancy, who's got a laughing face. Phil's telling her about Dean, Jerry, and her dad, Frank, at a telethon. That's Jerry Lewis, the king of comedy, and the famous telethon that resulted in the reunion of the comedy duo Martin and Lewis. Phil's talking about how he cried when he saw that. Wait. Pride? Fucking disgrace. Whatever happened there? Then he notices Tony, but doesn't exactly jump up. You're leaving already? The condescension sprouting up like a brook after a rainstorm. T says it's a long hike to Jersey from here. Cringeworthy in that it's a softball for Phil to continue his narrative about all things pig me. Phil says, sure, I used to drive it myself. No more though. Either he's got a full-time driver or all future business will require you to come to me. Anything less, like Johnny Sack once said, would be undignified. He finally gets up and walks over to T. A men are talking moment if you will. That Nancy, though, would get the last word on. He congratulates him, but says he's got to bring something up. Favor already? Phil says. More like flexing already? Again, what happened to those grandkids? Tony's equally perplexed. Excuse me? Anthony, you always have business on your mind. Take a night, smell the cognac. The snicker, as he says it, is as impactful as Drago's wife and four during the exhibition with Creed. He brings up the veto situation. Kid's already got his own social worker. A KPI none of us hope is applicable to our own. But one we certainly use to judge or feel better about ourselves when it comes to others. Phil says he heard about it all from Patty. More homophobic jokes. But then T, you guys are family, right? As in, he's more you than he is me. Oath notwithstanding. Phil, what can you do? Throw money at the problem? In this case, yeah, kinda. Money buys therapy. At least a good kind of therapy, right? Phil says he'll talk to the kid. Set him right. Quite literally, Dr. Phil over here. Speaking of, for some reason, all this got me thinking of Oprah and NFTs. The blockchain mints digital assets. Oprah mints stars. Dr. Phil, Gail, Dr. Oz. Susie Orman, whatever happened there, and Rachel Ray. And I'm sure a slew of others coming up in the ranks. Nancy wonders if the two of them are gonna go home together. Incidentally, she's got a song called Home, too. Not about that subject matter, of course, but still. Tony throws a bit of a look and walks off. Next up, Hesh's house. Like revisiting an old corner of the world you haven't been to in a while. Tony comes in to see him. Hesh immediately brings up his prostate problems. Wouldn't wish him on his worst enemy. By the end of this episode, though, it's safe to say he might kind of wish it on Tony. Hesh pours them both drinks. Says new. More Yiddish freeversing. On with it. Kind of like, let's not preamble this. Why'd you drop by? T updates Hesh on a split on the MRI centers, a new venture, new revenue stream. Perhaps that thing in the pilot still going strong or finally came to fruition. Hesh's cut is on the way. What is or isn't Hesh a part of? Stuff he invested directly in? Stuff he sourced for tea and takes a royalty on? Some of both? Would love to see Hesha's book is all. What's in it? How widespread his interests are? Tea brings up Phil's recent smugness and demeanor. Could be the hubris. Making boss. Since we're out here slinging Yiddish... I enjoyed how the mispronunciation led to an enunciation of bris. Of course, a word we can take back to season one from the line, finish his bris. Denial, anger, acceptance. It's worrying, Tony. Thinks it all goes back to his brother, Billy. He wonders about his key guys. Paulie, Christopher, his brother-in-law a suggestion that some or all of that lot might be on the chopping block in these final few episodes.
0: What's number one on their agenda, you know? They're all fucking murderers, for Christ's sakes. Long way at the top, boy
1: Another Jewish term of endearment. Turns out this was all a long way of Tony saying, it's nice being here. Always is at which point he says he brought Hesh something. Hesh, of course, thinks it's money. Setting off a cascade of events that will trigger throughout this whole episode. We think it's money. But no. He hands him a fucking cleaver hat. It's almost an insult at this point. Hesh tosses it to the side, says he was expecting something else. He's direct, but not confrontational. What else is he supposed to do? Send an... Automated email reminder? A passive-aggressive text? Hey, never saw your check in the mail. Just wanted to make sure it wasn't the goddamn postal service again. What can you do? Throw money at the problem? Right here, realizing he should have applied Phil's axiom to this. Tony thinks he wants the DVD. Is he toying with him? Trying to tease out an uncomfortable confrontation so he can hang it over his head later? It would be an all the permutations move for the ages. Hesh bites, asks for some of the 200K he loaned him. I know it's covered, he says, trying to find some cover of his own after firing off that round himself. It's just after a while with no VIG. After a while with no fig, what? Well, you start to get pissy. That's what. T leans back. Says he lost track. Is glad Hesh didn't. Proving his point? Or genuine? He reaches into his pocket. Pulls out about three grand. There's three again. A point and a half good? Wait. Wasn't that pre-negotiated? We just making up interest rates on the fly now? No prime plus in this thing of ours? Hesh pushes it away. Come on, fuck this. T says you gotta have it. Don't want you eating cat food. The condescension, of course, is just getting started. Hesh says he doesn't gotta have it. And he doesn't need a vig from T. But... He knew this was a possible outcome. He hedged his bets, waited enough missed vigs to ask, but now has to stick and move. Perry, Tony's blowback. Tony insists, says he should have been on it, luring Hesh, just like he lures Melfi. Hesh ultimately takes it, bad form? I don't think so. But it's lose-lose no matter which way you look at it. If you don't ask, you get screwed. If you do ask, you look like a petty schmuck. What's worse? A schmuck who doesn't get paid. With that, T, are we good or what? And leaves. The Hesh farewell doesn't seem to be off to a great start. Not as far as T's concerned. Moments later, Hesh goes upstairs to complain to Renata. I lend the guy money. Suddenly, I'm the schmuck. Once the chiseling starts, I love that. Ooh, I forgot. Who forgets? Fuck him. Hesh is pissed. Great moment for him all around. He's right. Who forgets? Nobody. If anything, it probably speaks more to where somebody is on the overall pecking order. How much they're valued. And in this case, too, how much they are perceived as a threat. Next, we're on Tony and therapy. Great wide shot. Then a great angle on Melfi's legs. You know. For old time's sake, they just sit there for a bit. Damon, her legs, of course. Then Tony.
0: You got a lot of Jews in your business,
1: right? My business?
0: Yeah, it is. You got to hand it to them. When it comes to money, <laughs> in my experience, that's nothing more than an
1: ugly stereotype. Really? Stereotypes are not. There's a great book on the subject of the history of money by Nial Ferguson. It's called The Ascent of Money. I think it even got made into a series. Anyways, it covers Shylocks and the origins of credit and debt, and how debt was essentially the key driver of the legendary wealth of the Rothschild family. And how Vigs were the invention of Jewish bankers in Venice for which there's a nice tie-in to the show coming up in a sec. T. Mox Hesh, without saying his name, of course, goes Janet Jackson, says he's like a moth to a flame, or a fish attracted to bait, when it comes to the almighty dollar. Moth to a flame, by the way, originally comes from Shakespeare, Merchant of Venice. There's that tie-in from a second ago. 1596. It's about a melancholic Italian who defaults on a debt to a Jewish loan shark. Called, of all things, Shylock. Everything's related. He mentions the gambling losses, the bridge loan, not knowing when to hold them or when to fold them. Writing his own version of a Kenny Rogers song over here. She asks why he doesn't just stop gambling. He explains it's a big part of his life. But it's interesting because he's never had this problem descend on him like this before. And that was an actual critique of the show, I believe, which, as everybody listening already knows, I completely skip over critiques, that is, largely because. Good, bad, or indifferent, I think critiques are moot at this point. This series will be studied for generations. Anything that achieves that level of contemplation trumps whatever in the moment or armchair quarterbacking that happens in the short term. She asks him, What are you chasing? Money or a high from winning? He doesn't answer, not yet. He'll indirectly answer it to Carmela later. But it's clearly both. And Dostoevsky articulates as much about the human condition in his story about Alexei Ivanovich in The Gambler. Then she brings up some housekeeping. His agenda to hers. An interesting pivot. You miss a lot of appointments. He resents that. I give you notice or pay for the hour. All about the money, remember? She blames herself. It's not you. It's me. Classic telltale of a breakup. Says she's condoned it for a long time. Again, the cynic in you at the end of this wonders, to what end? Hers or his? He reverses the script, siding with the therapy for a change. He makes it seem like therapy is actually helping, working now. I haven't had a panic attack since my uncle shot me. Love that he reduces it to that. That's the metric. The threshold baseline. No panic attack since taking an unprovoked bullet to the torso from a family member. She asks if that's the only reason he's there, in therapy. The panic attacks. Shouldn't she know? Or have a professional opinion? Not that she would say it or reveal it here, but he says, no, he says, no, this is an oasis in my week. And that's the trigger word for her, that it's over, oasis. True personal aside, I found my therapy a while back to morph into an oasis of its own. And that's when I realized it might be time to stop. Because I was making it what I wanted it to be, not what I needed it to be.
0: So this is vacation.
1: She says decide if you want to keep coming, but know there are protocols that have to be followed, or I won't be able to continue. I feel like she's laid down these ground rules before, though. Also, Tony's getting it on all sides now. First hash, now Melfi. Who could be next? Speak of the devil. Cut to Carmela with Cousin Brian's wife, Janine. Brian's there too. So's Hugh. And so's Ted Iaconelli from Iaconelli Home Inspections about as regularness a life as it gets. And someone who, from the looks of it, believed he had his work cut out for him after Hugh and Carm were revealed to be the builders. And folks, we have a buyer. All those motherfucking caravans. All that staging. And for what? To sell it to your cousin. Probably for a price. To cop Carm's expression. Hugh and Carm look nervous. Perhaps a recognition that he'd crossed paths with Iaconelli's outfit before. But he doesn't let the nerves fester. He's old school too brandishes his signature hand swat. But you think they cut corners once the cousins were buyers? Tony certainly does, and we'll see how that unfolds a bit later. Cut to Vito and Phil having a sit-down, their sit-down, of a different kind, of course. They're at the silo at Applegate Farm in Montclair. Place predates the Civil War. Speaking of Daniel Plainview and Milkshakes, Vito Jr.'s enjoying one, though safe to say Plainview would want no part of that one. We see he's got black nail polish on too, rounding out the features of his new look. Phil watches him enjoy his snacks, then says that's not the reason he came out. No pun intended. To buy him a couple of Sundays. He's on his second one, mind you, and those things are big. One of the superhero characteristics we all have when we're young. Vito Jr. asks what a silo is. At which point, Phil grabs the Sunday, Doesn't give a fuck what it is. Asks, what the hell's wrong with you? And then, the soprano classic. Look like a Puerto Rican whore. Make me sick. So? Now, just so we don't leave little Vito's question hanging... Silos store things in isolation. If I were enjoying that sunny afternoon at Applegate with Vito Jr., I'd probably explain to him that my media diet is pretty siloed. There's the Sopranos, and then there's everything else. Then, just like Junior, I'd say, one hand washes the other. Watching other stuff just makes you want to go back and watch. The Sopranos. I'd probably be met with the same blank stares that Uncle Phil was, but I said my piece. Phil says he gets the need to be rebellious. He raised kids too, as if laying out his credentials would move the needle here. He says he needs to think about his mother, what he's putting her through. Your family's had enough shame You should set things right. Be a man. And that's it. He set his piece. The onus for all the troubles in the world falls on Vito Jr. Looks at his watch. Finished that thing. There's no eating in the car. Love that. Something any of us who've got kids have certainly tried to enforce. I have yet to find a survivor on that hill of battle. Over in Tony's backyard. Dinner outside. They're celebrating, among other things, the sale of Carmela's speck. Blanca wonders why two people need such a big house. Consumerism and excess, and some perspective there. Meadow explains it away. They have a baby on the way. I heard that as a thousand square feet per human at a minimum. Blanca stares coldly at A.J. She's really using him, but not getting what she planned, it seems. Hard to tell. Cut to Carm's parents, asleep, late at night. The show is doing the rounds. One final curtain call for the DeAngelises. Elegantly bringing everybody back for a final bow. The phone rings. Hugh goes for it. It's Carmella. Have you looked outside? It's raining. He tells her to relax. They replaced 50 to 60% of the bad wood with Doug fir. Note, not all the bad wood, just about half. Enough to maybe sneak it past whatever cracks were in the way. She's fretting about the studs and the headers upstairs. Those are the beams that disperse the weight over openings. She's nauseous. Hugh tries to reassure her that everything's been on with all his previous houses until these sob sisters took over the building department. An expression Hugh wears especially well. The term was used in the early 1900s for emotional human interest stories, or sob stories, that were often written by women. The origin of the term stems from the coverage of a murder trial. The victim was a man named Stanford white. And if you look the guy up, you'll immediately see why it was a sob story. Besides the fact that he was murdered, of course. The guy had a legendary mustache. Those don't come easy, as those of you who dabbled with one or several iterations during the pandemic know. It's sad when they go so young. The next day, Tony's handed lunch, subs all around. Hesh comes by. Polly jumps up. The mysterious stranger. Now, with his penchant for black magic, sick shit, and all the rest, was that a reference to Mark Twain's book of the same name? Where the mysterious stranger was Satan and the number 44? Hesh says he dropped his son off at physical therapy and thought he'd check in on the brain trust. Perhaps. But that's not what Tony thinks. Polly invites him to sit down and play a hand of cards. Tony, don't be shy, Shylock. Merchant of Venice again. Hesh figures, why not? Tony mocks it.
0: Why not, she says.
1: <laughs> waving his arms every which way. At which point, Hesh offers a Jewish joke. To maybe take the edge off Tony. Using B Rabbit's eight mile tactic of, this guy ain't no motherfucking MC. I know everything he's about to say against me. The guys laugh, except T. Or in this scenario, Papa Doc. Hesh is offered a sandwich, the hospitality of the group today. T says he's not there to eat, he's here for the rent, tosses his sandwich aside.
0: The rent, the rent.
1: What are you talking about? The tension is visibly thick. Tony's MO, you want to wet your beak and tell me about it? I'm not going to live it down. Tony puts some cash in a sandwich bag and lops it over to Hesh. Something about the way he put it in the bag made it even more targeted. More focused. More hurtful. More undignified. Hesh tries to play it off. Asks for a beer. Figures he'll save it for the postmortem with Renata later. But the awkwardness is palpable. Perhaps worse, Tony's not done. Says he's got some spare change too. To make sure he can get through another week. Rubs two coins together the camera push-up on Hesh, to convey both that he saw the action and immediately reacted to it. Then T softens. Says it's a joke. All of it. Relax. Where's that sense of humor? Emphasis on the word that. Thinly-veiled digs flying around as if it were C-Webb and Jalen Rose in a room together. Hesh smiles and pulls the money out of the bag. Says he should put it in the pot, make things interesting. But instead, tucks it immediately away in his breast pocket. He's not going to chase shit. Later at home, his daughter's taken his blood pressure. He thinks it's high, but turns out it's normal. She attributes it to the Kung Pao. He scowls, folds his arms, and asks for a drink. Even better for high blood pressure, right? The thing is, Tony Soprano isn't a symptom listed on the back of blood pressure medication. Never lend friends money, he tells his son-in-law. He's complaining to Eli about the way Tony's been talking. He's worked up about something he says and taking it out on him with hostile remarks. Then he turns to racial stereotypes of his own. This show, if nothing else, is one act of hypocrisy after another, right? Like with like. You know how these Italians work. For the most part, it's okay. But get them cornered, you're dealing with nothing more than an animal, a golem. Of course, recalling Titleman and the Romans. Where are they now? Man, just thinking back. Those cuts between Titelman and Tony? You see shit on TV today, and you just scratch your head. You motherfucking makers of this stuff saw The Sopranos. You saw the blueprint. How can you allow for anything less than on the level with that? I suppose it's the same way Jay-Z gave motherfuckers the blueprint. Not once, but twice. Yet nobody can touch the crown. Eli asks if Hesh fears for his life. Why is he going to extremes? Too high or too low, there ain't no in between. That was for the Billy Joel contingent. But Hesh doesn't fucking know. Great line. He's the guy I call to deal with people like him. A fantastic way to present his quandary. Eli talks up Tony's financial bona fides. He's good for the money. But Hesh begs to differ. Minus assets, he reckons under six. As in six million. Discounted cash flow models, Hesh style. Eli can't believe it. Listener surrogate, as we can't either. Come on, he's a boss. Hesh explains he knows him. The more he makes, the more he spends. And that wife now shots at Carmela. Tell us how you really feel all these years. Makes you wonder is all. What people that know you considerably well really think of you. To which I resign and sigh. God damn it. Each of us is alone. In the fucking universe. Hesh wonders aloud. At what point is it cheaper for him to settle it another way? As in, take me out of the equation. The sound of crickets outside is perfect. As we cut to Tony at the blackjack table. Mixing things up. All the guys are there. Music plays over their mostly inaudible conversation. We hear they're at the Borgata. The scenes were actually filmed there. Still standing, unlike another casino there that was recently leveled. There's a shift change between dealers, Lady Luck on her way out. Tony catches one whiff of the new guy, and it's time to go. Polly's thought? He could go for a ribeye, Flintstone size. That reference coming in for the Sopranos trifecta. Also perhaps wanting to make up for their less than stellar experience at the Haven Air Substitute in Culpeper, Virginia. Guy's owed his fucking stake. Tease up about 18K. Everything's looking good. Smiles all around. That great pan shot of the casino floor. 100% swingers vibes. Which, for those of you who ever feel stuck creatively, or on a venture. Swingers was made for 200K. Just some perspective. Back on that beautiful shot, the tops of people's heads, the hopefuls, the lost ones, the last chance power drivers. Then the motion sequence Tony coming at the camera as it weaves through the crowd, letting the cinema technique fly. In these final episodes. The guys appear behind him, flanking him on either side, almost a reservoir dog's feel to it, just paced up a little. The song lands on the lyric, I have had my fun. A reminder that so have we with this thing of ours. T looks up, chips firmly tucked in his arm, sees a horse race scoreboard. At Batavia Downs Gaming, there's a Meadow Gold. Two to one odds. The name Meadow is what caught his eye. Meadow Gold, incidentally, is also the name of a soon-to-be, if not already defunct, dairy company in Hawaii. Cell says he's gotta do it. Three minutes to place bets. There's three again. The guys line up at the bar to wait it out. There's no sound. Chris tells Bobby he put 18K on this, maybe 25. Basically, everything he won and then some. Bobby could give a fuck. Whatever happened to to the victor belongs the spoils. They get the sound on, the guys start cheering. Flashbacks to Tony cheering for AJ at his football game. But predictably, Meadow Gold gets second by a hair. The audio slows and blurs to a drawl. Tony, headed for rock bottom. He could cue the Howlin' Wolf song right here, too. But he holds it together in front of the guys. What are you going to do, huh? Walks off. Over to AJ and Blanca at dinner. A nice place. Guy's got a job, remember? Server's got a bow tie. Certainly a no-hats establishment. Though it's safe to say T's bar for where hats should be permitted is high. Anyway, dessert comes. She says she didn't order nothing. A great writerly contrast there, given the environment they're in. AJ says he ordered for her. AJ ordered for her. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper? Turns out he's been living in Tony's house this whole time. She cries about her weight. Actually, there was no cry. It was pretty matter-of-fact. But under the cover is a ring. What? Couldn't he see the signs through that mustache of his? One that would make Stanford White roll in his grave? He gives her the pitch. The fact that he even has to give one tells you everything you need to know about where this is headed. I'm not like Hector's dad. I'm going to work my ass off. I'll always take care of you guys. Says he's going to pivot from night manager to running his own pizza places, then clubs. She'll never have to work again. For all that, she reluctantly says yes. After taking another look at the ring, of course. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. He gets up to kiss her. And that's that. Piano outro and all. That's amore, quite literally, on a silver platter. Over to Marie Spatafor, Weddings to widows. Serving snacks to Tony, who came by to have a sit-down with Vito Jr. He was on deck. Now it's batter up. Note. Gandolfini's real voice leaks through here a bit in this scene. I thought so, at least. Specifically when he says, time for our talk here. But who am I? Nicole Kidman and the Interpreter now? That movie was directed by Sidney Pollack, by the way. The latest in Vito's misadventures, he antagonized some developmentally disabled kid. Is that term acceptable today in 2021? I'm pretty sure it is, but you can never be too certain these days. Makes you wonder about a lot of the stuff in the show today. How much of it would break social norms or strictures? And whether and to what extent anyone would give a fuck? But imagine what kind of show it would be if everything had to be run through the can-we-say-this filter. It's been talked about before, like, certain shows could never get made today, etc. But it feels more acute now than ever before. And so part of The Sopranos' mythology, as with most legendary things, comes down to timing. Vito wonders what T's even doing there. Says he doesn't even know him. Calls him Carlo Jr. half the time. Vito's throwing strikes. And T watches them fly by without taking a swing. He confuses the next of kin of middle management as much as the next guy. And there's nothing he can say to get out of that. Until, of course, he rushes the mound. Tony grabs him by the throat and says, listen, I'm not some fucking social worker. You knock this weird shit off or I'm going to introduce you to a plate glass window. To which I wondered, so specific. What's he got against tempered glass? Vito says his dad should have knocked the weird shit off. Calling it like he sees it. Good for him. Then T, you go about in pity for yourself. Everything except the Ojibwe wind in the room at this point. Think about your mother. Yes, that's M-U-D-D-E-R. What she's been through. Everybody with this mother thing. Vito's a kid. It's more on her than it is on him. He didn't ask for any of this or create it. This guy doesn't need tea or fill in his life. He needs a feed full of Gary Vee telling him where to tell his parents to shove it. Vito shedding a tear. What am I supposed to do about it? Right there. Tony sees the tear and his eyes almost communicate a little bit of realization about his own impasse with his own mother. Her shit was her shit, too. What was he supposed to do about it? This moment is a flicker, and I'm sure it was by design. Super powerful. But you miss it if you blink. It's all in the cut and in the perfect acting. He pats him on the arm a couple of times and leaves. We see him looking down the hallway. Unfinished scene cut. Love that. Stuff is messy. Ambiguous. Unclear. Every day. Back at home, rummaging through the fridge, Carmela comes in, feeling great. Her house just closed. Tony gives her a big celebratory hug. How much all-in, he asks. Close to 600 k she says. Tony says, take a chunk of that and put it on the Jets. Said no one ever. You can already start to see where this is going. Oh no, please, not another white caps. Actually, go for it. Give us all a lesson in how you rise to the challenge of competing with that. T's serious, makes it a we thing. We can't get hurt. The bet's a sure thing. The Chargers quarterback has a bum leg and even Vegas doesn't know about it. He's talking about Phillip Rivers, an indication of how long that guy has been balling out. He actually just retired and has decided to coach high school football in Alabama. Gotta love that. Carmella gives him the look of horror, the progression on her face as she slowly realizes he's serious. It's like a rye song. Then the genius writing right hook to the face. I didn't say all of it. Just a piece of my half. My half. The smile cut. She redirects, or tries to, at least. You're rich, Tony. Use some of your bird feed stash to cover it. T, at this point, Defcon 5 on the bullshit. That money's for emergencies only, Carm. You know that. How could she not, right? And my other money's tied up in asset allocation. Likely heard that expression on the radio recently while in the car. But the notion of a mob boss, arguably one of the riskiest professions, being concerned about risk management, is kind of fun. He likens the sale to windfall cash, house money, the kind of thing precisely that you play with. I'm telling you, we are golden here. The nervous, shit-eating grin on his face. She says nothing, just reaches down to get a pot, start something for dinner. He pulls back, rubs her shoulders, forget it. I should have never mentioned it. She says it's all right. I just thought this was, gulp, my money. He says she's right. Hugs her. Under his breath, it is. And for now, we get a setup for how this will rival Whitecaps the water is starting to crest. Over to Hesh. Reading a book in his library on Ed Sullivan. The guy, of course, behind the Ed Sullivan Theater and the show that paved the way for so many others. The Ed Sullivan Show. T pulls up. Hesh notices through the sheer blinds. It's Tony and Bobby who Hesh immediately interprets as muscle. In this context. And we're curious too, just the optics alone. Then couple it with his paranoia about an easier out for Tony. He calls out for Renata, says for her to go to the bedroom and lock the door. She calls him Hershey, wonders what's going on. But she obliges. She heads up, he opens the door, nervous as hell. They detect it. T says they came over to invite him to a boat show down in Edison. Home to many of my cousins. Well, point of origin, anyway. Hesh passes, says he's good with CNN and the latest news on Hezbollah. But he was reading a fucking book. T reaches into his pocket. A gun? Hesh thinks so. But no. It's the Vig. 3K. There's three again. Hesh plays the game, again. Give it all to me whenever you can. Tony, you are gonna do this every time? That was a clean blow for him and us. Hesh invites them to stay for a drink, but they'd rather go. T heads out, says he'll call next time. That's hitting a guy when he's down. So low grade, it stings even more. Making him think that Tony thinks he doesn't think Hesh thinks highly of him. When it's actually the other way around. Like we talked about earlier. Did that just make sense, by the way? Hope so. It could be the lingering effects of altitude sickness I got while in the mountains for a week. But why'd Bobby even go in if it was going to be that quick? I mean, Carlo stayed in the fucking car. Just saying. Unless... Bobby was logging steps or something. Inside the car, Tony's complaining about Hesha's pissy attitude. Bobby says he should tell him to go fuck himself and his 200K. Now what's he gonna do about it? Quasimodo's kinda right. T actually considers it, but then, not pay my debts? Head of the family? Tony Lannister over here. Carlo chimes in. Who's gonna know? It's like Eddie Valentine, he says. Tony thinks he's talking about a guy from Philly with a bum leg. But Carlo's talking about the Twilight Zone. But that was Henry Valentine. From the A Nice Place to Visit episode. Which features a lucky streak of sorts of its own at the casino. Valentine himself, a gangster in his own right. Just then, Tony goes off. Vito brings in three times what you do on construction. Quit watching TV. Red, I wouldn't have money problems if it wasn't for you. Shit goes downhill, right? Carlo's fucking pissed. But just like Bobby said, what's he gonna do about it? In Carlo's case, though, like Hamilton saying. Just you wait. Just you wait. The next morning, Tony sees the headline about the Jets. Imagine how he'd tweak with the immediacy of scores available through his phone. The fact that he had the patience to wait until the next morning. A cultural anomaly now. Scratch that. Impossibility. Even if all you had riding on the contest was 35 bucks like that douchebag at the Bing. Anyway, they won and covered and then some. Tony's pissed. He only bet 10. But at least he played, right? He lets Carmella hear about it. The wave starts to break. Carmella, you talk about this stuff like it's science, Tony. In a way, though, there is an element of science involved. The science of chance. And T's hypothesis is pretty straightforward. We could have turned your bullshit into a fucking million dollars. And then, Whitecaps light. The only reason I call it that is because it finds resolution within this hour. It doesn't linger into another season. I'm just going to play the whole thing because it brings Arthur Miller back from the dead. Or Richard Yates. Not Yeats. Yeats. Revolutionary Road. My bullshit? That spec house was my investment
0: for my future. Here we go. Jenny Sack had to move in with her fucking daughter, Tony. Again with Jenny Sack, huh? John provided she's a fucking hysteric. Never think I might know what I'm doing. You and the furniture and the clothes and the cars. You would have spent everything I made if I let you. You know what? The next time you win, I'll take a cut and I'll roll the fucking dice. You already took your cut from the bird feeder. And don't fucking deny it again. What, 40 grand in the stock market? I ask for my piece, but wait, there's nothing. And that spreck house? I made the down payment. I bought the materials. I leaned on that building inspector and you would your thumb up your ass. So stop talking about your money. Let go of me, you piece of shit. Fact is, you're a shitty businesswoman who built a piece of shit house that's gonna cave in and kill that fucking unborn baby any day. And now you can't sleep. Fuck yourself. What I've got, you can live in a fucking dumpster for all I care.
1: power, the silence afterward, the way T tiptoes off to the kitchen around the shrapnel from what Carmela threw at him. Stops you in your tracks, chill to the bone. Nobody does it better. From that shitstorm, we cut to a pile of shit, Vito Jr.'s, after being antagonized in the shower by his peers. He steps in it for good measure great little interlude to pull us out from the weight of the moment with Tony and Carmela. Cut to Tony at dinner with the guys. Paulie's doing what else, telling stories about stealing Corvairs. Communipaw Avenue. The alliteration. Corvairs are creatures of the 60s. The only American car with a rear-mounted engine. The name comes from a combination of Corvette and Bel Air. Also, you can't have a name like Communipaw and not feature it on The Sopranos at least once. Alliteration notwithstanding. Type Communipaw into the machine in your hand and the first thing that pops up is New Jersey. It's a little neighborhood in Jersey City and the street that runs through it is its namesake. It means on the other side of the river. Tony cuts him off mid-dance. What of the power tools? Pauly says the Florida crew is sending up the first truck Friday. Good to see that deal is well underway. Wonder what Phil's piece is going to end up being, seeing as how T and Beansy put the whole thing together. Or you think this is something he doesn't need to know about? T asks Chris about their buyer, Alphonse, at the hardware store. Al. That hardware store and Al, of course, will become a plot point in a future episode. Nice little setup for that here. Chris says he's ready for the whole load. And with that, a light bulb goes off in Paulie's head. Guy's gonna wet his beak too. Robbing Peter to pay Paul. Is that an appropriate use of the expression? Or is that more of me writing this at 11,000 feet? Another not fully oxygenated thought. Speaking of whole loads, all this primes Bobby to tell everybody about what we just saw Vito Jr. do. From waiting in line to get Junior stool softener to announcing high school shower shitters over the intercom. You know who had an arc? Chris thinks he's one stage away from Columbine. You know, it's crazy. That was a joke then and seemingly is still a bud of some sick and dark jokes since then. But now in 2021, having just witnessed another mass shooting in Colorado, it is stunning that not much has changed in an effort to curb or outright prevent that. Also stunning is why everybody that wants a vaccine can't get one. But what's this, meet the press now? Chuck Todd over here? Anyway, fuck Vito. Tony feels worse for little Francesca. Just nine years old. What did she ever do? If anything, a subtle hint of his own bias towards Meadow over AJ. Chris going full little Carmine like a pebble in a lake. Even the fish feel it. Guy thinks he's the Dalai Lama now, who he just paraphrased. Just as ripples spread out when a single pebble is dropped into water, the actions of individuals can have far-reaching effects. Speaking of far-reaching effects, T says they've got to help out. He's gonna step up. (laughs) Liquify. Some offshore monies with some help from Slava. Remember him? Pine barrens? Also liquefy, part of the whole asset allocation tranche of vocabulary he's been dropping. He asserts his leadership by creating a wedge to squeeze Phil out of future shit. Says he's never going to forget Phil didn't come through here. The guys applaud Tony's decision. Pauly, not so much, but he belts in at the right time. Guy's old school, certainly thinking, fuck Vito's dad and the gay pride flag he flew in on. Speaking of flags, cut to AJ driving. Puerto Rican day parade going full blast. In his car as well as outside. Flags everywhere. Hector's in the back, feeling it. All the vibes coursing through his veins. Even has a Puerto Rico hat on. Moments later, they meet up with Blanca and she breaks up with him. Faster than she accepted his ring at first. He says he loves her again but she says she's not feeling it. And that's it. He watches her drive off with her brother, Jesus, to a bad rendition of La Vida Loca. Hey, at least she did it in person, face to face. There's a lot to be said of that, actually. It's old school. Breakups or ghosting over text? That's death by a thousand cuts. Back over at the bing, Chris is playing pool, long pan over to Sil and Tony, talking about the Dolphins kicker who got into a motorcycle accident. I think that was made up because I don't recall Olindo Mare being injured like that. And he would have been the Dolphins kicker at the time. But who am I, Bob Lee? And what is this, outside the lines now? T. So opens his safe and starts placing saran-wrapped bags of cash in immediately starts thinking about the betting odds because of the news. The backup kicker is fresh out of college. Sill pipes in. Too good to be true. Tony decides to put the whole 100K down on Philly. And if he wins, Maurice Badafore gets a free ride and then some. Though he'd never actually give her any more than the 100K. The cut to Chrissy, thinking, bad idea. But he doesn't say anything. Part of him, no doubt, enjoying this collapse. Then the confusion about Vito Jr. at the end. Yeah, good for you. Because Carlos said that kid went to the litter box and ate some cat shit.
0: No, he took a shit in the shower. Glad we got that straight.
1: One of Sill's best moments. But it's so quick. You almost don't even hear it when it happens. Later. Tony listening in the car. Philadelphia loses 21 to 7. New driver, by the way, Dante Greco. Nice little upgrade from Soldier trying to track down Vito Spatafor or receiving cigarette shipments from Christopher. T shuts off the radio, all the permutations at internet speed. Then calls Marie. Says she needs to send Vito to this tough love camp in Idaho says he was moved to tears on the infomercial he saw about some of the success stories. She's worried about corporal punishment, but he disregards her motherly instincts and says it's 18K and he's going to cover it. Saving himself 82K in the process, by the way. He closes the deal with a repeat and rework of a Christopher line. There's no geographical solution to an emotional problem. Sounding it out literally as he said it there. Too good. Marie? Thank you, Tony. Click. Again, what's she going to do about it? Kind of frightening when you think about it that a mother can't even have final say on her son in this thing of ours. Cut to tea outside Satrial's. Talking to Carlo and his son. They hug it out. It's unclear what they were actually talking about. But something's moving. And it feels like somebody's watching. Like the feds or something. Watching over an informant. I said it. T-hop's back in the car. A song called Honky Tonk is playing. He's thinking, as one tends to do when the swing of a drum pattern catches hold sees a Muslim family outside on the sidewalk. He recognizes one of the guys, two actually, the guys from the Bing. Is this his way to get an edge with the feds himself without outright cooperating? He sees a large congregation gathering, enough of a threat in his mind to say something. As Dante, his driver, starts a conversation. A great contrast, by the way, the Americana tones of the music, honky-tonk, with the optics of a band of men dressed like Taliban. Cut to Vito, fast asleep, three guys enter, there's three, and sweep him off to corporal punishment camp. Marie puts up a little bit of a fight, but to no avail. Back on Tony, watching a basketball game post-mortem on TV. Stackhouse hit a three as time ran out. That's Jerry Stackhouse. Third overall pick in the 95 draft. 18-year vet. Once hyped as the next Jordan. Talk about fucking pressure. The likes of which you've never seen. Stack was on the same team as AI for a season. Whatever happened there? Currently, the head coach at Vanderbilt. Anyway, Dallas won that game 109-108 over the San Antonio Spurs. From the looks of it, another bet T lost. T switches over to Bush engaging in diplomatic talks with the Saudi King. A nice setup for Karm, who enters. They're not speaking. He gets her to sit down, engages in some diplomatic talks of his own. Says he's sorry. Convincingly admits he's losing big. A real shitty streak. She wonders about the logic. It's simple to him. You start chasing it. Answering Melfi's question from earlier. He explains he hates the Ginny comparisons. Says it's not going to happen to them. He's tired of her thinking it will. But she cries. Says you already got shot. Now you won't even go out and get the paper. Who is out there? Who is out there? Great question. Powerful. Everything ends. Even the little things. The stuff you take for granted day after day, week after week, until it doesn't happen anymore. And then it becomes the biggest fucking thing. A giant piano hanging over your head every minute of every day. Big picture-wise, He reassures her, he's already up, way up. He's not even supposed to be around. He's not supposed to be boss of this family. He's not supposed to have risen up to the top of his craft as fast as he did. He's not supposed to be in this house or be able to drop several mil on a boat. And the list goes on, making you now realize that, like Valentine, he's in a twilight zone of his own. And, interestingly, when you realize that, it's self-evident that the end, some kind of end, is near. Fast cut to Hesh, coming out of the bathroom, shocked to find Renata out so early. Looks like he was in the mood for a little action. But she's not out. He finds her dead. Calls 911 and breaks down. Later, in his office, where he once decided whether hits or hits or not, Tony comes in with a little brown bag from Bloomingdale's. Offers condolences and a bag full of money. Where'd he get it after that Philly loss? Sorry for your loss. And out of there. Outside the house. Great wide shot of the property. The music. Going down slow. By Howlin' Wolf. Tony's expression. You fuck you. Almost. If I'm going down. In an effort to get out of this thing. I'm taking everybody with me. Not a great look for Tony this whole episode. From the gambling, to the way he treated Carmela to the way he blamed everybody else for his own problems. But incredible how we can forget all that with a simple apology and the recognition that we'd rather spend time with him than without. And that's it. Hesh gets his little brown bag from tea, while we await ours. Even though, true to what Howlin' Wolf sang, we've done enjoyed things kings and queens will never have. And that's 81 episodes in counting of this thing of ours. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time.